part, we look as if it's a glass darkly. In other words, you can't get a, a, you make out shapes of things perhaps, but it's not a real clear image or a real clear picture. And for that reason, I believe Paul is prompted by the Holy Ghost to pray for the church, all the churches that he established in the places that he had been to. And his prayer is pretty much the same thing with every church that he writes to and, and tells about the fact that he is praying for them. First and foremost on the list, he prays, and, and probably the, the most detailed we have of any prayer that he prayed is in Ephesians chapter 1, where he prayed that God would give unto the church their spirit-filled believers, but that, he would, that God would give unto the church the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. Now, if they were already born again, if they're already filled with the Spirit, why do they need revelation in God? He's not talking about revelation so that you can be saved. He's talking about revelation so that we'll know the hope of his calling. And he says that. He says, I pray that, the, that God the Father would give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. The eyes of your spirit being enlightened. The eyes of your spirit being enlightened that you would know what is the hope of his calling and what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and what is the exceeding greatness of his power that works in you as a believer. Now, folks, if we take that apart and look at the three things that the spirit of wisdom and revelation will bring to us, it'll bring us spiritual enlightenment so that we'll know what God has called us to do. In other words, so we'll know what our place is in the body of Christ. Paul had a revelation from God the Father about the body of Christ working together as a, as a, like the human body does. And he goes into some detail about the parts being different. And even though there are some that are more noticeable parts than, than others, the body couldn't work and function properly or effectively unless everybody knows what they're supposed to do and carries that out. So he prays that the spirit of wisdom and revelation would enlighten our hearts, our spiritual eyes, open our spiritual eyes, so that we would know what is the hope of his calling, what God has specifically called each and every one of us to do. Now, folks, that has to be different for you than it is for me. Because if it was, if it was the same thing, if, if he's just praying that we would understand the fullness of salvation, then he wouldn't have talked about you knowing the hope of your glory and me knowing or finding out the hope of God's glory for me. He would have identified what it was if it was the same thing for everybody. But because it's not, it's left up to you and me to pursue God, to pursue the, the truth of fellowship in his word so that we can identify just what it is that God has for us. Now think about what that presupposes. That presupposes that all, all we have to do is entreat God for that knowledge and he'll give it to us. Wouldn't it be stupid for Paul to tell us to pray for something that God wouldn't give us? So these things that Paul is praying for the church, these three things that he asks God to give them, the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him to obtain are things that God wants to show us. He's not trying to keep things hidden. He wants, him, he wants he, himself to be revealed. He wants to reveal himself to each and every one of us. He wants to reveal to us what belongs to us. He wants us to, to know and he wants to reveal to us the exceeding greatness of the power of God that works in us as believers. Now, folks, Jesus said the works that he did, we'd do also. And even greater works than, we, than he did would we do because he went to the Father? Think of the power that's resident in each individual member of the body of Christ. The power to do the works of Jesus turned the world upside down when he was on the earth. He didn't say we'd have a measure of that. He said we'd do the same works as him. He said we'd do greater works. Now, I have no idea what that is. I don't know what greater works you could do than what Jesus did. Some people have said that's a reference to getting people saved because Jesus couldn't do that when he's here on the earth. And that's fine with me. I, I'm not going to argue with that. But we're back to the same thing that he told them. Not only would we do greater works, but we'd do the same works. 
Imagine if the church, just for one day, 24 hours around the world, if for one day the church operated in the power of God to do the works that we see Jesus do, can you imagine how it would change everything about where we live? See, we look at the coming of Jesus and the reaching of the the unsaved, reaching the world with the gospel of Jesus. One day doing what Jesus did would go a long way to evangelizing the whole world. In the book of Acts, it talks about how 3,000 people got saved on the day the Holy Ghost was poured out. It tells us in Acts chapter 3 about 5,000 people that got saved because one miracle was done with the the paralytic crippled guy at uh, the beautiful gate of the temple. If the church just operated in the power of God, the fullness of the power of God for one 24-hour period, it would change everything about this planet. Now, is that the way it's going to go? I have no idea. Kind of hope so. But I I don't find anything in the Word that tells us one way or another that that would be the way. But the Bible does say the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God like the waters cover the sea. That means there'll come a time where everybody knows, where everybody is exposed to the goodness of God and to his power. Well, what keeps us from doing that? What keeps us from acting on what Jesus said we would do and operating in the power that he said we had? It's the veil of the flesh. It's the things that we haven't pierced through the veil to see. Because all it would take is us seeing what we need to see. And it would change every one of us. It would change every one of us. Look with me to Luke chapter 24. I know I've talked about this several times. But I'm going to do it again for a couple of reasons. One is I like the story. But there are truths there that we need to see. We'll start in verse 13. Now, the, the preceding verses in Luke chapter 24 tell about the resurrection of Jesus. And it ends, the story ends in verse 12 in Luke's account with Peter running to the sepulcher because Mary has found the tomb empty. And it says immediately following that, verse 13, and behold, two of them went that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was from Jerusalem about three score furlongs. It's a half day trip. Now, two of them means two of the 12. You remember everybody's scattered And they're huddled up behind closed doors for fear of the Jews. But on the way, they talked together of all these things which had happened. And it came to pass that while they communed together and reasoned, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But his eyes were holden, their eyes were holden, that they should not know him. This word holden, let me give it to you from the original Greek. The meaning of this word holden is to use strength, that is, to seize or retain. So in other words, what it's telling us is the law of sin and death is still ruling over these guys, and they can't see or understand clearly even the events that they saw relative to the crucifixion and the report of the resurrection. Their eyes were holding that they should not know him. And he said unto them, What manner of communications are these? that you have one with another as you walk and are sad. And one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answering said unto him, Art thou only a stranger in Jerusalem? And hast thou not known these things which are come to pass in these days? They think everybody in town must know about it. Everybody in the surrounding areas too, perhaps. And Jesus said unto them, What things? And they said unto him concerning Jesus of Nazareth, which was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people. And how that the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and have crucified him. Now verse 21 tells what they're dismayed about. 
They said, but we trusted that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel. In other words, they can't make the connection between the crucifixion and God's plan of redemption. They're thinking that Jesus couldn't have been who they thought that he was because he was crucified. They didn't get that from the Old Testament, meaning they didn't understand the death that Jesus had to die. So they said, but we trusted that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel. And beside all this, today is the third day since these things were done. Yea, and certain women also of our company made us astonished, which were early at the sepulcher. And when they found not the body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels, which said that he was alive. And certain of them which were with us went to the sepulcher. We know that from uh, John chapter 20. We know that was Peter and John. Certain of them which were with us went to the sepulcher and found it even so as the women had said, but him they saw not. Then Jesus said unto them, O fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? Now remember, the Bible says after Matthew chapter 18, where Jesus asked his disciples, who do men say that I am? And they gave their opinion. Some said he was Jeremiah or Elijah or one of the other prophets. And then Jesus said, but who do you say I am? And Peter answered for the group. Peter said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus responds to him and he says, blessed art thou Simon Barjona for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father, which is in heaven. And he said, I say unto you, upon this rock, and the rock he's talking about certainly wasn't Peter. Wouldn't the church worldwide be a mess if Peter was the foundation of it? The rock he's talking about is the knowledge of who Jesus is. The knowledge that Jesus is the Christ. He said, upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Then it goes on and says that Jesus from that time forward began to plainly teach and tell them about going to Jerusalem, about being taken captive, about being sentenced to death, about being crucified, and about being resurrected from the dead. Well, you can see these disciples weren't holding on to any of that truth that Jesus spoke. And the story, can, uh, as it continues, the Bible tells us that Jesus, when he did finally appear to all of them at the same time, that he upbraided them for their hardness of heart and their unbelief. In other words, they, for whatever reason, and I guess if you're just looking at it from a natural or fleshly standpoint, it would be hard to accept that Jesus was going to be crucified and raised again after three days. Maybe that was the reason that they had a hard time with it. But Jesus seemed to be of the opinion that they should have believed him. Otherwise, he wouldn't have rebuked them or upbraided them for their unbelief and hardness of heart. Now, these guys aren't saved yet. John 20, the part of John 20 where Jesus appears to him and breathes on him and said, receive the Holy Ghost, that hadn't happened yet. We'll see it take place a little bit further in this chapter. And so there are unsaved men who walked with Jesus, who witnessed his miracles, who heard what he said, but the last part of it they didn't accept. So when Jesus begins to speak to them, he brings it back into perspective in verse 26. He said, ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? In other words, he's saying redemption wouldn't be possible for you or me or anybody else if it hadn't worked this way. And beginning at Moses and the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, why don't they know these things already? Why didn't, when Jesus heard from Peter about being the Christ, the Messiah, then when Jesus began to clearly teach them, plainly declare to them about going to Jerusalem and being crucified and being raised again the third day, why did they not then begin to talk to Jesus or begin to study for themselves or do whatever was available to find out what the Old Testament said, what prophecies would be fulfilled by Jesus himself. It was certainly a topic of conversation all throughout Jesus' ministry. 
there are numerous times where Jesus refers to the Old Testament prophecies and then identifies himself as being the one that these prophecies concern. So why didn't they inquire about some of these things? Why didn't they ask him for a clarification, if nothing else? Doesn't, isn't there one of them in the bunch that would have the courage to say, Jesus, wait a minute, you're saying you're going to die and then you're going to be raised from the dead after three days? Did we get that right? Is that really what you're trying to say? What better place or what better time would the disciples have to be filled with those kind of questions? They wouldn't have to be scholarly. They wouldn't have to have rabbi training. You've got Jesus right in front of you. He's claiming to be the Messiah. He's plainly telling them that after three days he's going to be raised again after he's crucified. And nobody thought to ask him what really is going on. Maybe it just comes down to the fact that they were still unsaved. They were not yet born again. And maybe the unsaved don't think about those kind of questions. I don't know. But Jesus began to tell, him, tell them everything about himself as it relates to the Old Testament prophecies. And beginning in Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And they drew nigh unto the village where they went. And he made, Jesus made as though he would have gone further. But they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, stay here with us. For it's almost evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to tarry with them. And it came to pass, as he sat at meat with them, he took bread and blessed it and broke and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened. I like this phrase. And their eyes were opened. And they knew him. And he vanished out of their sight. Folks, these guys had walked with Jesus for three years. But the veil of the flesh kept them from being able to see and recognize who he was. But as soon as their eyes were opened. Now what took place? What opened their eyes? It wasn't what he said to them along the way. It wasn't when he said, ought not Christ to have suffered these things in order to enter into his glory. That didn't open their eyes. What he expounded to them from the Moses and the prophets, that didn't open their eyes. But there came a moment where he blessed the food that was in front of them. And then their eyes were opened. Now, folks, what was this opening of their eyes if not a work of the Holy Ghost? They're still not saved yet. Jesus still hasn't appeared to the bunch and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Their eyes were opened and they knew him and he vanished out of their sight. And they said one to another, did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us by the way and while he opened us to us the scriptures? And they rose up the same hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven gathered together and them that were with him saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And they told what things were done in the way and of how he was known of them in breaking of the bread. Verse 36, and as they thus spake, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said unto them, Peace be unto you. But they were terrified and affrighted and supposed that they had seen a spirit. And he said unto them, Why are you troubled? And why do thoughts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit has not flesh and bones as you see me have. And when he had thus spoken, he showed unto them his hands and his feet. And while they yet believed not for joy and wondered, he said unto them, Have ye here any meat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and of a honeycomb, and he took it and did eat before them. And he said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Now notice verse 45. Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the Scriptures. 
and said unto them, Thus is it written, and thus it behooves Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. Folks, that's where John talks about how that he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Ghost. Because the connection he made about them receiving the Holy Ghost was the remission of sins, just like Luke says here. He says, Whosoever sins you remitted are remitted unto them. Whosoever sins you retain are retained. Now, that doesn't mean that the disciples, or I guess we should call them the apostles at that point, it doesn't mean that they had the power to save or to hold judgment against anybody. It simply means they had the, the, the mandate and the responsibility for preaching righteousness and redemption and assuring anybody that accepts Jesus as Lord and Savior that their sins were remitted. Verse 48, and you are witnesses of these things. And behold, I send the promise of my Father unto you, but tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. Folks, notice each one of these times, and, and again, I'm going to tr uh, I choose to use the same example that Paul did when he was writing to the church about Moses putting the veil over his face. Little by little, this veil is being opened up or pulled back. Little by little. And there are times when Jesus talked about, for example, at the Last Supper when he gave them information about the Holy Ghost in John 14, 15, and 16. He indicates that the work of the Holy Ghost will be many-faceted, multifaceted. And as a result, he said that the Holy Ghost would teach them. He said that he would bring all things to, his, to their remembrance, what Jesus had said. He would testify of Jesus, testify of him. He would guide them into all truth. He would be a comforter just like Jesus was a comforter. So much so that he said to the, to the disciples, it's better for you if I go away. Because if I don't go away, the comforter can't come. So he's telling the disciples who have spent three years with him in ministry on the earth that it's better for them, for him not to stay and for the Holy Ghost to come. All these are elements of quickening. When he opened their eyes to understand the scriptures, both with the 12 and then before with just the two that, was, that were on the way to, to Emmaus. It's piercing the veil to get a glimpse on, of what the reality is on the other side. God wants to reveal himself. But if he's going to reveal himself, it's going to take something on our part to put ourselves in a position where we can see and know. Really, when Paul prayed for the church or the churches, he's praying for them to have the spirit of seeing and knowing that they could see into the spirit realm how things really are. That they would be able to see and know who they are because of what he has done. And the Bible is full of examples where the Holy Ghost will pull the veil back or puncture the veil for a specific period of time for a specific purpose to bring about something that carries out his will or even just encourages us. You remember in the Old Testament the story of Elisha? I'm sorry, it was Elijah that had the contest on Mount Carmel. He wound up killing 450 of the prophets of Baal when God answered by fire and consumed the altar and the sacrifice and everything else that was around it. Well, after that, Jezebel, the evil queen, threatens to kill Elijah within one day's time. And he hears about this, and rather than what we might expect, him to make some comment about if she thinks she's bigger than God, let her try. 
But instead, he starts running away. And he runs up into the mountain. And he falls down under a tree and he says, cries out to God and says, oh, I'm the only one left. I might as well die out here now too because I'm all that's left that haven't bowed their knee to Baal. And in the process of time over the, the course of events that took place relative to God showing himself to Elijah, ministering to him and so forth, one of the things that he did is the Holy Ghost told him I've got 7,000 that haven't bowed the knee to Baal. Now, why did the Holy Ghost reveal that? It didn't really make a difference as far as Elijah's ministry was concerned. I'm sure it encouraged him, and that's the only, uh, the only value I can attach to it. It encouraged him when he was in the midst of his discouragement. He thought he was alone, but there were 7,000 others. Well, here's a word of knowledge. A manifestation of the Holy Ghost is taking place just to encourage one guy. Just to encourage one guy. He didn't go find the 7,000. He didn't tell anybody else about there being 7,000. But it encouraged him. It gave him strength or helped to give him strength to go forward and finish the work that God had given him to do before he went off the scene. Every little work of the Holy Ghost, whether it's a gift of the Spirit or whether it's just an inward witness or direction in life or whatever it may be, every time the Holy Ghost moves, revelation comes forth. The Holy Ghost can't help but reveal things because he's the revealer. And there are these flashes or quickenings of the Holy Spirit all throughout the Scripture to show us God's character and his attitude to reveal to us that he wants to help us, he wants to bless us, he wants to reveal himself. If we'll simply look for it. Look with me over to Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16 is a very important passage of Scripture based on the importance of Paul's missionary journeys. Let's start reading in verse um, 6. Now, when they had gone throughout Phrygia and the region of Galatia and were forbidden of the Holy Ghost to preach the word in Asia, I don't know how he forbid them, but it must have been the inward witness. But notice the Holy Ghost brought revelation about where they shouldn't go. It's revelation. However, he forbid them to go, whatever means or method God used to get the point across, he did get his point across. So he revealed to them where not to go. After they were come to Mysia, verse 7, they essayed, the word essayed means to attempt. They attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit suffered them not. Again, I don't know how it was, but all of a sudden, revelation came about where they shouldn't go, or that being a direction that they should not go. Now, folks, if they had known this to begin with, they wouldn't have tried to go that way, would they? It seems that they didn't start off on this missionary journey with a, a route mapped out. They may, and I would imagine that they did start off with some ideas. First and foremost, they're going back to confirm the churches are still doing well since they had left them. So that identifies at least part of where they would go. But after they conclude their checking in with certain churches, then they want to go further, and the Holy Ghost tells them not to go that way. Then they come to another place and try to go in another direction, and the Holy Ghost says, no, I don't want you going that way either. Why didn't the Holy Ghost just tell them where to go? Why didn't the Holy Ghost just say, no, I want you to wind up in Macedonia? That would have seemed a lot easier, wouldn't it? Well, 
well, perhaps the things that are going to happen when they get to Macedonia are serious enough and severe enough to where they need to know that they know that they know that they did the right thing. So they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit suffered them not. And they, passing by Mysia, came down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. And there stood a man of Macedonia and prayed him, saying, Come over into Macedonia and help us. And after he had seen the vision, immediately we endeavored. Please notice that Paul didn't make the decision on his own. He threw out there what happened. And the whole group decided together, this must be what we're supposed to do. After, we, after he had seen the vision, immediately we endeavored to go into Macedonia, assuredly gathering that the Lord had called for us to preach the gospel unto them. There's revelation. Now they have revelation about where to go, not just where not to go. Now they've got revelation about where God wants them to be. Therefore, loosing from Troas, we came with a straight course to Samothracia, and the next day to Neapolis, and from thence to Philippi, which is the chief city of that part of Macedonia, and a colony, and we were in that city abiding certain days. Tells about the people he got saved down at the riverside. Skip down with me to verse 16. And it came to pass as we went to prayer, a certain damsel possessed with the spirit of divination met us, which brought her masters much gain by soothsaying or fortune-telling. The same followed Paul and us and cried, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God, which show unto us the way of salvation. And this did she many days. But Paul, being grieved, turned and said to the Spirit, I command thee in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out the same hour. Now, folks, why did Paul wait till after many days to do this? We know that God has given us the power over evil spirits. And to cast out evil spirits, but you can't do it against somebody's will. <coughs> Unless there's a special move of the Holy Ghost or a special unction of the Spirit of God, then taking action and casting out an evil spirit like that would take the consent of the individual. So it had to have been that after however many as many days there was an unction of the Holy Ghost a lightning of the Holy Ghost a flash of Holy Ghost power that Paul acted on and set this little girl free now there had to be revelation to that for Paul to know what to do there had to have been in this flash of power given not by Paul or his company through a matter of prayer or any other human endeavor. But it had to be something that came from the Holy Ghost so that Paul and or his company knew that there was something that God wanted to deal with concerning this little girl. So he cast the devil out of her. Then he gets thrown in jail. Those flashes of Holy Ghost quickening or Holy Ghost lightnings, I don't know what you should call it. Maybe any of these work or maybe there's something better that we need to find to call them. But these quickenings always result in your faith being strengthened to either do or carry out or maintain your position so that the will of God can come to pass in your life. Paul had another one of these things over in Acts chapter 27. You remember he was on the way to Rome and the Roman soldier that was in charge of him set sail too late in the year. Paul warned them. He said, sirs, I perceive that this voyage will be with much hurt not only to the ship, but also to the goods, the merchandise. But the sailors said, oh, we'll be fine. We'll make it. And the Roman soldier in charge of Paul said, well, the sailor ought to know what he's doing. This is his business, not yours. And so they wind up in the middle of a storm 
so severe that the sailors, hardened guys that had been doing this all their lives, couldn't eat. They went for several weeks without eating anything. But Paul stands up one morning and says, you know, you guys should have listened to me when I told you that this was not a good idea. But then he reveals that the angel of the Lord appeared to him in the middle of the night and told him, fear not, Paul, for you must be brought before Caesar. And the Lord has given you all them that sail with you. Howbeit you must be cast upon a little island. And so Paul just tells the people, I believe it shall be even as it was told me. Here's Revelation. But it came in a much different way. This is Revelation that came by the appearance of an angel. But what was the end result? Well, the end result is now that Paul is strengthened in his faith. I don't know that it gave him faith that he didn't have before because he knew from the beginning that he must go to Rome. He had identified that when he was in Ephesus in Acts chapter 19. But it had to have strengthened his faith. Now here's an interesting thing, folks. When Jesus encountered storms when he was in his earthly ministry, he rebuked the storms and they ceased. Paul had to ride his out for three weeks. Both was the work of the Holy Ghost. Now I'm sure all of us would prefer Jesus' method every time. Let's rebuke these storms. Let's rebuke these trials and afflictions in hard places. But sometimes the way of escape is going through them and not just having them in. I've really started putting my faith out recently within the last several months. I've really started putting my faith out on being quickened by the Holy Ghost. David in Psalm 119 identifies five different things regarding these quickenings. He said, quicken me, Lord, according to, my, according to thy word. He said, quicken me according to thy way. He said, quicken me according to thy righteousness. Quicken me according to thy judgments. And finally, quicken me in according to thy loving kindness. So David pretty much covered all the bases. There were several times he said, quicken me according to thy word. Several times he said, quicken me according to thy judgments and so forth. But those five things are, are what he claimed quickening for. And if you look back in Psalm 119, you'll find that some of the time, most of the time actually, he's asking to be quickened because he's in the middle of an affliction. He says so in several places. He says, my soul is, is afflicted. Quicken me according to your word. In other words, he's looking for the way of escape. You remember 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13? He says, there is no temptation taking you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not let you be tempted above that which you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way for you to escape. Folks, the way to escape is different from person to person or from experience to experience. Again, we'll use the example of Paul on the ship. He had to ride out a storm over three weeks. Jesus rebuked the storms and they ceased. I wouldn't be willing to say that Paul didn't have enough faith or enough understanding of the power of God to not be standing up in the bow of the ship and commanding this storm to stop. Because his way of escape was a different way than just rebuking the wind. I've told you several times, I'm sure, but regarding this fight, this physical fight I'm in, I've had five different things revealed to me by the Holy Ghost by these quickenings. And they've come in different ways. One came as a matter, as a result of a dream. 
that occurred twice, one right after the other. And the others have just come by the Lord speaking to my heart. But the verses of Scripture that he quickened to me, those are special now. Now, don't get me wrong. All the Word of God is true. All the Word of God is powerful. And so it's not like there's more power attached to one because it was quickened to my heart than another. But they've become hold, places to hold on to. They've become special in that God spoke these things to me specifically and personally to my heart. Many years ago, the Lord impressed upon me. Well, I, I need to not say it that way. I felt impressed to claim a certain amount of money to come in for the church in a particular year. I really don't know if that was God that told me to do it or if it was just my idea. I really don't know. I think it was the, the leading of the Holy Ghost, but if it was, it was even less than a still small voice. And so I began at the first of the year pretty much every day claiming that certain amount of money for the year. Well, I went along six or eight months without even really thinking about it. But I got down to just after Thanksgiving and realized that, I, that the church was way, way behind the amount that I had claimed. Well, here I've got just about a month left before the first of the year. And the devil started in hot and heavy on me. Like I said, he hadn't said much of anything to me about it for the whole year. But now that the deadline was coming close, he made sure to talk to me about it every day. Now, it wasn't anything that I'd claimed in front of the church or, or had said anything to the church about. So it wasn't a matter of being embarrassed or humiliated if it didn't come to pass. This was just something that was between me and God. And so we got down to about two weeks left in the year. And I was talking to the Lord about this. And all of a sudden, as fast as you can snap your fingers, he quickened Mark eleven twenty three, or a part of Mark eleven twenty three, to my heart. Now, folks, I know Mark eleven twenty three, and that's the reason I'm making the confession to start with. But there was something in my mind's eye. It was like a certain portion of that scripture was raised up. It's like I saw it before me as if I was reading. But a part of it just really stood out. Whosoever shall say. Whosoever shall say. Whosoever shall say. And I saw something. And it wasn't like I didn't know it before. But it was quickened to me and it brought strength. Because I realized I've been saying this the whole time. I haven't doubted in my heart. I've maintained the profession of my faith. Now, folks, we're down to about the last week, and we're $500,000 short. We've never had $500,000 come in in a week before. The devil made sure I knew that. But I knew I'd been saying it. I'd been saying it from my heart. It wasn't like I was claiming money for myself. I was believing for this money for the sake of the church, the things that the Lord wanted us to do. And in that last week, really the, the last part of it was January the 31st. We had that $500,000 come in during that period of time. I'm glad for the money. But the quickening meant more to me than anything. What the Lord deposited in my heart just from the scripture that I've been using all year long. What the Lord deposited in my heart was worth more than the money by a long, long, long shot. 
Folks, we need to realize God's on our side. He wants these things to operate in us. He wants us to get results. He wants us to have what the Word says is ours. And every flash of Holy Spirit power or lightning or whatever we want to call it, every flash, whether it brings revelation and most everything that the Holy Ghost does, does bring some kind of revelation and or strength. God wants you to have just exactly what you need every time you need it. I want to challenge you to begin to believe God to quicken him, for him to quicken you according to his word, quicken you in his ways, quicken you according to his righteousness, quicken you according to his judgments. You're a doer of the word. That means you're keeping the judgments of God. And finally, quicken you according to his loving kindness. I'm looking forward to more flashes of lightning, flashes of Holy Ghost lightning, quickenings than we've ever seen before. Let's pray. Bless your name, Father. We magnify you. Thank you so much for sending us the Holy Ghost who teaches us, who testifies of Jesus, who brings all things to our remembrance whatsoever the Word says, who shows us things to come, who guides us into all truth and all reality. And Father, we thank you for quickening us to pull back the veil in whatever area we need so that your word comes alive. We know your word is alive, Father. Your word says that it's alive and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. But Father, only you know what each one of us needs to be quickened unto for the situation we're in so that we can bear fruit, the fruit that you said you wanted us to bear because we abide in you and your word abides in us. Thank you, Father, for doing miraculous things by the quickening of the Holy Ghost in each and every one of our lives so that we see through experience more than ever before your faithfulness. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Thank you for being with us, folks.